What got you through lockdown? Was it the Zoom calls with your relatives, the WhatsApp groups for your street? For me, it was being able to order copious amounts of craft materials through Amazon to fill those endless hours with my daughter. So imagine what it was like in 1918 when they had none of those things. How did they ever get through it? Well, truth is, a lot of them didn't, because a lot of them simply died. Welcome to Rebel Women. I'm Esther Freeman. For our final episode in the Beyond Medicine series, I want to take you on a journey through the 1918 pandemic. We will explore how this new deadly form of influenza impacted communities and how Britain responded. Having shown how women stepped up to keep society moving in 2020, we asked, did the same happen in 1918? The so-called Spanish flu arrived on the back of World War I, and there were three waves between 1918 and 1919. However, the deadliest was in autumn 1918. It's hard to know exactly how many people died around the world, but rough estimates suggest at least 50 million. That's around a fifth of the world's population. So if you compare that with COVID, which to date has claimed 7 million lives, you can see this is just on another scale of devastation. However, its close proximity to the war meant that people in Britain had other things on their mind when the virus first hit. They were already dealing with hunger, hardship and death. And that first wave was actually quite mild, so it was quite easy to dismiss it. After all, flu was quite common and it wasn't even a reportable disease like things like TB. There was also underreporting by the media due to wartime press restrictions. I actually looked through the British Library's newspaper archive and it's just not mentioned at all. Yet by July, it had swept through the country, taking over factories and other industrial spaces. There were few people speaking out about the virus. One exception to that was Dr James Niven, who was Manchester's medical officer for health. He realised the devastation that the flu was causing. He ordered schools closed, printed 35,000 handbills which were distributed to factories and gave guidance on how to isolate the sick and make your workspaces safer. However, it wasn't enough. By October 1918, which was the most lethal peak, it was killing 95 children per week. In London, initially people weren't alarmed. Flu was common and although it did claim lives... It was just considered one of those things. However, by 1918, it was becoming clear that this strain of influenza was different. People were dropping like flies. In one 48-hour period, 61 people collapsed on the street. By the end of the month, 14,000 metropolitan police officers were ill. And in some parts of the capital, so many sick farmen meant that pumps went unmanned. The 1918 pandemic is often talked about as a disease that hit young men, as it was believed to have been carried back from the trenches. However, in London, there was a slightly different picture. It was actually women who were hit hardest as it swept through factories that they were conscripted to, places like munitions factories and other workplaces that were supporting the war effort. These workplaces were crowded, unhygienic, with poor ventilation, so just the ideal place for a virus to thrive. 
By the end of the final wave in 1919, up to 23,000 Londoners had died. And one of the most shocking stats that I came across was that 25% of those deaths happened in just a few weeks of that lethal second wave. It's hard to get your head round exactly what it must have been like to live through that with so many people just dying everywhere. And unfortunately, there is just so little data out there to understand the experiences of people in London or anywhere else. However, there is an important collection at the Imperial War Museum. It's called the Collier Collection, named after Richard Collier, who put it together, and it was created in the 1970s. It took personal testimonies of people who'd lived through the pandemic. Most of them were children at the time and were now in their 70s or 80s. One of those was Bernard Wilson, who lived in Stepney and was eight years old at the time. He said, quote, As long as I live, I shall not forget seeing people collapsing in the street. There was not an ambulance system as we have today, and I saw people picked up off the ground and taken away in flat-top wheelbarrows. Mrs Kane, also of East London, remembered, quote, They died like flies and were taken in plain wood coffins by lorry loads. I can remember the black flags flying in the streets where almost every house had someone who had gone. So how did the government respond? Well, unlike in 2020, there was no national lockdown. However, like us, they did have a mass debate, except the decision was not to issue a mandate. This is contrary to other countries, such as the US, where they did have one. But in Britain, we were determined not to get into such nonsense. The Daily Mirror carried a report from a doctor who confidently stated, quote, In my opinion, a mask is a very much overrated safeguard against flu. Hmm, sound a bit familiar? The issue of closing schools was hotly debated. The school's medical officer did not think it would slow the spread in densely populated communities where people were living in overcrowded accommodation with many people sleeping in a single room. Others argued that young people would just flood entertainment venues if you close the schools, so kind of what was the point? London County Council Gazette simply advised headteachers to exclude anyone showing early signs of the illness and keep the classrooms well ventilated. Although some schools were forced to close due to so many teachers falling sick. However, this was normally for short periods. In 1918, there was no national public health response. And to understand why this was, I want to unpick a little bit about how Whitehall was working at this time. So it seems strange today, but at the time there was no Whitehall Department responsible for health. This pandemic actually predates the Department of Health. At the time, public health was responsibility of local sanitary officers and the medical officer, who were appointed by town halls. They were mainly focused on administering the poor laws, and they were often reluctant to initiate advice unless central government told them to. And of course, Whitehall was too consumed of the war to do anything like that. And this position was supported by the British Medical Journal, who encouraged people to just ignore it, because they claimed that fear would leave a person more open to infection. So was the British response the same as other countries around the world? No, not at all. In Australia, women turned their homes into soup kitchens. And in the US, around 2,000 women who had cars drove into ghettos to serve as ambulances. 
delivering to cross-denominational hospitals, so Catholic nuns working in Jewish hospitals. And Red Cross nurses stood on the street handing out masks to passers-by. One of the most interesting case studies I found was in Canada. They had one of the most extensive public health campaigns. Federal departments and local mayors called for volunteers to come forward to relieve the pressure on hospitals. In Quebec, church group broke usual rules to send volunteers to flu-infected homes. They also raised funds to financially support families. The Red Cross stepped in again and took over home economic departments of schools to cook, quote, broths and custards. These were delivered to the bedridden. In Ottawa, 200 women filled the council chamber at City Hall, sewing each night to 11pm until they equipped the newly opened hospitals. In one 24-hour period, 14,000 items were churned out, including hospital shirts, towels and nappies. The majority of these Canadian volunteers were women. Caring was seen as women's work because obviously they have natural maternal instincts. Also, men were just a bit reluctant to step up because it was seen as women's work. Others were also overseas waiting to be demobbed. But as I say, in Britain, there was no coordinated central government response other than what Niven did in Manchester. People were just advised to stay in bed and hire a nursemaid, if you could afford to do it, and of course, many couldn't. So the care in a lot of households was done by wives, mothers and sisters. And I would say that these are the unsung workforce we will never really know about. Except for the Collier Collection, which does hint at the scale that this kind of caring by women happened. In a testimony by Mr Copping, who first saw his father and then his mother fall ill, he remembered, quote, Relays of strange women came in simply to sit by my father's bedside. It was just another case where the women spontaneously got themselves organised in the face of a common enemy. If the mother fell sick, it would often fall to the eldest girl to take on the care. This was the case for Joy Trivet from Penge, who was 14 years old at the time. She remembered, quote, My mother contracted influenza and as so many people either had it or afraid to come into contact with it, I had to stay at home and nurse mother and run the house for dad, my seven-year-old brother and baby brother of six months. However, sometimes it was the wider community who stepped in. Doris Martin, who grew up in Stepney, remembers each member of her family falling ill one by one. She said, quote, Neighbours were afraid to enter the house because of the scourge. When we wanted a loaf of bread, my mother had to put coppers on outside the window ledge. Then a loaf was put there. The scale of this kind of community support was hinted at by Dr Anna Adderley, resident medical officer at the Voluntary Hackney Dispensary. She said, quote, The difficulty experienced by our patients through lack of sufficient accommodation in their houses and flats in isolating the first cases of influenza which occurred resulted in many cases in which the whole family fell victim to it. And it is not uncommon to visit a house in which every inhabitant was in bed and the neighbours had to be relied upon to give any help or assistance they could find time for. There was no volunteer ambulance service like there was in the US. No women were jumping into their cars and driving into the ghettos. But it's important to remember that due to World War I, women had been at the wheel since 1915, conscripted there. 
This is seen on Transport 2, where huge numbers of women were conscripted to work on buses, trains and trams throughout the war. Records show that transport workers were hugely hit by the flu. I mean, it's obvious, really, they're working in those confined spaces with lots of people that virus is just going to spread. And Metropolitan Railway records show that women were working there until December 1919. In the records, the reason for discharge is given as return of men from active service. But they must have been plugging gaps caused by the pandemic because there were just so many people falling ill and unable to work. So what about the Red Cross in Britain? In Canada, they were cooking broths and custards and in US, they were handing out masks. Unfortunately, I didn't find any evidence of them doing either in Britain and there was no mask mandate here anyway. There were suggestions that they may have been delivering food. I did find in Kensington some evidence of that, although we didn't find it anywhere else. Many people, and particularly women, may have been helping without realising they were actually helping. In 1919, the Medical Officer of Health report for London acknowledges that children educated in open-air classrooms, quote, suffer to a lesser extent than those in ordinary classrooms. And I found this interesting because I already knew that in 1914, Rachel and Margaret Macmillan had founded the Open Air Nursery, which was originally in Bow, but later moved to Deptford. So chances are, without realising, they were saving lives. I also went through the archive of the Women's Dreadnought, which was a newspaper run by the East London Federation of Suffragettes. They had been providing medical help for children via the Women's Hall since 1914. So again, chances are, just as part of their normal services, they were helping people during the pandemic. Another interesting report I found was the 1918 Medical Officer of Health for Leighton. They make a special mention of the Leighton Health Society and the Council's efforts to save infant life. They say this largely female volunteer workforce assisted trained nurses, Mrs Hislop and Miss Lister, in baby clinics and home visits. They advised on feeding and clothing children and, quote, hygiene around the home. They also raised funds for medicines. So these women were working during the peak of the pandemic. They must have helped and they must have taken great personal risk in doing so by entering the homes in some of the most crowded infected areas in London. The medical officer health states in his report that they, quote, deserve much praise. I've not covered nursing in this project because, well, it's called Beyond Medicine. And obviously it is important, but my feeling was that is covered elsewhere. However, it is worth mentioning some of the citizen volunteer nurses around the world. Nurses were at the forefront of the fight against flu, and this was because doctors didn't really have any treatments. So all they could do was make patients as comfortable as possible and hope for the best. And around the world, nursing workforces were completely overrun. And in many countries, they put a call out to the community. So I should say I didn't find any evidence of this in Britain, but I did find some evidence of such a scheme in South Africa. And the woman I found actually came from Himes Park. Her name was Lydia Phillips, and she was the daughter of a prosperous umbrella manufacturer. She'd always wanted to be a nurse, inspired by Florence Nightingale. And when war broke out, she was on holiday in Johannesburg. And then suddenly they were stuck there because all the shipping was commandeered for the war effort. So her family made their home in the leafy suburbs. 
It was all very pleasant. Lydia played tennis and learnt the piano, but she was also bored and she craved adventure. So when she saw an advert in the Rand Daily Mail calling for hospital volunteers, she responded. On her first day, Lydia reported to the staff nurse at 8am. She was handed an apron and a white cloth twisted into a nurse's cap. She was assigned a ward where there were rows of narrow beds lined up against each wall. In one, a fully dressed man tossed and mumbled in the throes of fever. The nurses told Lydia to kneel at the foot of the bed and rub the man's feet until the doctor could come. She was told to watch for any change in his condition. Now apparently this man was dirty and unkept with hot, sweaty feet that smelled sour. Fighting to keep down her breakfast she'd eaten only an hour before, Lydia began rubbing. She continued until her hands were sore, regularly checking the man, his face, his body, to see if anything changed. And he was clammy, but she didn't really see any difference. Her knees were aching from the stone floor when she finally heard the doctor approach. She was pretty relieved the vigil was all over. Lydia returned at 8am the next morning and the bed was empty. She asked the staff nurse what had happened to the man who she had attended to for so long the day before. Oh, he died in the night, the nurse replied. After four years of war, Britain had endured air raids, fuel shortages and endless grief. Nobody is really worrying about anything as common as flu. TB and measles were considered much bigger. It was just quite easy to dismiss influenza. Or maybe they chose to dismiss it. Maybe they just didn't have any more room for any more trauma. Whatever the reason, the 1918 pandemic has been largely wiped from historical records. And actually, that's kind of easy enough to do if you think about it. The deaths occurred in the privacy of home, witnessed only by family. And there were certainly no memorials built to those killed by flu, even though there were so many more people who died from the flu than died in the war. This was the largest mortality event in human history, and it's extraordinary that it failed to lodge in the collective memory. So when there is so little information about the pandemic in general, trying to find out women's contributions was really hard because obviously they're a group who are routinely excluded from even well-documented historical events. It really has been one of the hardest pieces of history to research. There is so little data, no biographies, and it is barely referenced in art and literature. With so little to go on, it's hard to understand the social implication, so our understanding has to come mainly from assumptions. So I would argue that we know what women were doing to organise around the war effort or even campaigning against it. So it's not unreasonable to assume that they were doing so against the pandemic as well, just as they did in 2020. And certainly the evidence from other countries paints a picture of international sisterhood mobilising to fight one of the deadliest moments in history. This is the last episode in this current series. We hope you have enjoyed this deep dive into women and pandemics. If you're still looking for more, visit our website. You'll find details in the show notes. 
A special thanks to the National Heritage Lottery Fund for their generous support in making this podcast series possible. To find out when our next series launches, hit that subscribe button. See you soon. Thank you.